Good evening. We're, we were on our final night with, with Dr. Ortiz on, on archaeology, going through, uh, going through David and Solomon, which is, kind of, which is your field. Right? This is where, where you, your, research, your current research is. That's fantastic. That's just awesome. Um, and tonight, Slido, if you want to write this down, because we are going to be doing slides, or if you want to go to slido.com to ask questions, and uh, the, our room number is 744-355. Um, and if you, and even if you don't ask questions, if you want to like questions that have been asked, that brings it to the top, so we know more people are interested in that. So if you'll participate in that, that would be wonderful. Uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll, we'll get started. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your Son that saves us. Thankful for your word, Father, for your truth. And we, we know your word is true. And that's the foundation of everything. That's the foundation of Dr. Ortiz's work, right? That's one of the things that, one of the precepts he uses in doing archaeology. And so, Father, we are thankful to have men that do things like this, that, that, that show us the historicity of, 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 our, of our Bible, of our, of our faith. And it, it is a book about you, Father, but there's physical evidence of the things that happen. And so we're, we're just grateful, grateful for him to teach. And so, Father, bless him. Open our hearts and minds to your truth and make us different people. Uh, change us for having encountered you. Let us be different people that walk out than came in. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And I want to start off with one, one minor theological thing. Um, if you'll remember last week, Dr. Ortiz talked about the battle at Ai, right, out of, out of, out of uh, Joshua chapter 7. And if you'll remember, right, the people had been unfaithful, so God's anger was kindled against them. And so they sent some scouts up to Ai, and we talked about Ai was probably a fort, because we don't really have, there's no evidence, archaeological evidence, of a big battle at Ai. There's, an, there's evidence at Bethel, right, which was the big town right next to Ai but not I. And Dr. Ortiz said there's probably a fort there because you went along that ridge and you hit I before you got to Bethel. And if you think about, right, so they sent spies up there to scout out and they came back and they reduced the number of forces that they sent up to I for that battle, right? And they went up and they were crushed, right? 36 men died. And they came back and, and Joshua was like, what, what is going on, right? What, what, what's happening? And God says there's unfaithfulness in your camp. Right? So they had to go root out the unfaithfulness, and then they were successful in that small battle. And then we have archaeological evidence they were faithful in a huge battle at Bethel. But the Bible records that small battle because the, the, the point of the Bible is not how big the battle is, but the hearts of his people and the graciousness of God. And we think so much of this stuff, right, it's just facts, it's just kind of wars and battles. It's not. And while this isn't prescriptive, this is a way God works in you and me. Sometimes he'll put us in smaller situations, right, where, where we will be defeated, where we will get set back. And we have to stop and look and go, is my heart right in this? Is my heart right in this, right? And so we step back, and when our heart's right, we can, we can go on, and he protects us, right? This was protection of his people, and he protects us for those big battles. Does that make sense? I mean, because a couple of bad things could have happened. One, they could have sent the whole force of Israel up to Ai unfaithfully and been crushed, Right? Worse yet, they could have set the whole force up against I and been successful. And then gone on to Bethel and been wiped out. Right? But the Lord protected them. God protected them. So this is not, and we were talking, kind of talking about right in, in our lives, right? When your kid has a fender bender at 16. Right? That, that's a big deal. Right? That's a big deal. And, and you make it a big deal. Right? Because you don't want something worse to happen. Right? And so you learn that lesson in the small things so that you're prepared for those big things. 
So this isn't just like a record of, right, we tend to think of names and battles and places and one. This is how God works. The whole book is about how God works. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Well, but that was just been rattling around in my heart since your tea. And your teacher was magnificent last week, so very thankful. Thank and uh, excited about tonight. Come on up. All right. Thank you. Wow, even a theologian can get insights from archaeology. That's impressive. That, that demonstrates the old saying that even a blind squirrel can find an acorn. So <laughs> I'm sorry, Brian. You're just setting me up. It's my, my last night. I, I, this is my yes. <laughs> um, this will be the last time I'll perform here. <laughs> uh, archaeology of David and Solomon. Fact or fable? A lot has been written about the history of the Bible. Is the Bible true? Newsweek, every Easter, every Christmas, asks that question. It's usually somewhat in the negative. David is a hot topic. People like reading about David and writing about David. Um, a lot of scholars have addressed issues within um, the, the United Monarchy. A lot takes social scientific models. I like this one, David's secret demons, Jerusalem throne games. Uh, naturally, the emphasis on the negative aspects of David, usually Bathsheba is the central part of the story. And, um, but some even go further and they conclude that David never existed. Can a history of Israel be written? This is a conference in Europe that was addressing whether there's any historicity in the Bible and if it's made up or not. Uh, this one author, Tommy Thompson, part of this revisionist school, took it a step further. The mythic past, biblical archaeology and the myth of Israel. So not only is he saying the biblical text is a bunch of myths, archaeologists are creating the myth by what we're doing. He's not well-liked in the archaeological community. <laughs> so, tonight I want to address the issue. Is there historical evidence for the accounts of David? Now, archaeology has always found enough evidence. The research tended to support these small settlements becoming a major state under the auspices of King David and his son Solomon. What we're looking at is the sociological dimensions. How did the state form? How did the state develop? How did they use the tribes and forming into an administrative center, et cetera, et cetera. Most of our publications, there was a general consensus that there was a state developed sometime in the 10th century. Um, I've written, as Brian pointed out, a lot of my work uh, in various publications has focused on the archaeology of David and Solomon. And hence, I do feel that there's enough evidence that we can reconstruct of the history. I gotta take you back for the history of research. It started with William Foxwell Albright, considered the father of biblical archaeology. He first started as a biblical scholar and then went to Israel and started addressing how archaeology helps illuminate the biblical text. Uh, he excavated a site south of the hill country, Talbate Mersim, not well known, 
but he pretty much established the sequence. Now what archeologists do, my New Testament colleagues, they find coins, they find Latin inscriptions, they find mosaic floors with dates on them. Uh, we don't have that luxury in the Old Testament. Money wasn't invented yet. We don't find a lot of information. Uh, we do for Mesopotamia and Egypt, and that's why we rely on Egypt a lot because they've documented their histories. How we date things is the variations that we see within pottery. If I say eight-track tape, cassette tape, DVD, and I can keep going, you all know you can date those. I can put them on a table, and you can tell what period they belong to. Well, same thing in the ancient world. And pottery is that Tupperware that's always around. And so Albright discovered that at sites that date to the time of David and Solomon, there's this particular red slip burnished pottery. And here I'm showing you some just sherds of that, of that pottery there. And he basically, at all these sites where we have this red slip burnished pottery, we have evidence for a state. Now, Yigo Yodin is considered the father of Israeli biblical archaeology. Uh, started the program at Hebrew University. Key figure in the archaeology of David and Solomon, he excavated at Hatzor, up in the north. And when he excavated Hatzor, he found a particular gate structure. And he remembered the Germans at the turn of the century also had a similar gate structure found at Megiddo. And here you have the uh, era of, Hat of Hatzor and era of Megiddo. And he remembered a text in the Bible. Now this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, the temple, his own house, his palace, the Milo, and we're not sure what this is, but it's some type of structure, the wall of Jerusalem, and then he goes beyond the capital city and talks about Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And so Yadin goes like, we have this gate structure at Hatzor, we have it at Megiddo, perhaps there should be one at Gezer. Now Gezer was excavated in 1912 originally. And McAllister found some structures. Now archeology span was still in his infancy here. And what McAllister did is he added some buildings from various periods. And he called this structure a Maccabean castle, dating to the Hellenistic period, you know, third century BC. Yadin said, there's probably an early Solomonic structure beneath here. And so he put forth this hypothesis that Gezer probably has this single type of gate. Well, 1970, in the 1970s, actually starting in the 60s, my doctor father, William Deaver, started the Arizona School and uh, uh, New Archaeology, Processual Archaeology. I went to go study under him at Arizona. He went back to Gezer in the 70s, and he basically validated Yadin's theory. And so now we have the classic textbook case of biblical archaeology, where you take a verse, and then that verse can be illustrated from the archaeological record. And you can see these six-chambered gates. They have three chambers, some with towers, are all very similar. 
And he proposed, this is evidence of this building project under Solomon. Now, we don't have any founding stone that says, you know, this was established. Um, I'm the donor that gave money to Lipscomb University and my name's on a block in one of the buildings of Lipscomb or any other university. Um, we don't have any graffiti. I hate Solomon. He's forcing me to build this. There's no, you know, there's anything. We cannot connect a historical figure to these buildings. But what they show is a common origin or a common, what I like to say, construction company. And we know who the construction company is. The Bible tells us it was the Phoenicians. They used Phoenician builders. So they came with a similar plan, a contemporary, three different sites, one up north, one in the central part. Gezer guards the pass up to Jerusalem, so Gezer was also fortified. And it gives evidence of centralized authority. These aren't three different cities, you know, far apart that decided to build the same type of structure. There's some central authority that's telling them this is what you're going to build. And so I can reconstruct this that who is that central authority? It has to be some type of a king. It has to be some type of a, a great man who can make people do this, which is usually a king. And so the best fit is naturally the United Monarchy. So this became standard in every biblical archaeology textbook. And then you have this pendulum swinging back among the revisionists. Uh, Israel Finkelstein proposed, he didn't go as far as the revisionists in saying there's no David, instead of denying the historicity, he says, you know, we have our dating wrong. All this red slip pottery that fits all these gates and dates the gates of the 10th century actually belongs in the 9th century. So what he's doing is he's taking all the evidence for statehood and moving it to the 9th century and therefore all the evidence for David and Solomon is removed. And so that's been the debate. And well, who's David in the Bible? Well, David is just a small Bedouin chief. Remember last week, all those little villages that we dated to the Israelite period? Well, those get moved down too. And so David has to be a chief of all these little villages. And so that's how his model works. It's called the low chronology within archaeology. Uh, big question, is there a crisis in methodology? Can one archaeologist look at one material culture and say this eight-track tape dates to 19, 1980 and another one say no, it dates to 1960? I'm looking at you, Brian. I don't know why. If you know eight times, who has eight track tapes? Still using eight track tapes. But you see where I'm getting at. It's like, no, everybody knows when it dates to. And so this is the debate going on. Can we miss the state by 100 years, get it off? Is archaeology, is the archaeological record in the image of the text? i.e., are we trying to prove David and Solomon that we're changing the archaeology to match up the Bible, which is what critical scholars will claim? Or is Finkelstein right and everybody's just wrong? 
Well, there's a reason Finkelstein and critical scholars can do this. We do not find any state documents. Here on the screen we have Hebrew bull life from the city of David from Jerusalem, dating to the eighth century. And what these are, are the clay seal of a scroll. So you'd have a document, that scroll would be rolled up, a string would be tied around it, and the king's signet ring will go on that lump of clay and seal it. You have a destruction. In Assyrian destruction, Babylonians come, a fire, the scrolls get burnt, but that little clay seal that's wet gets fired up just like pottery, and it survives the archaeological record. So archaeologists can find these. These are found in one room in the city of David. And we can, you know, okay, there's 36. So we knew there was 36 scrolls or documents in this room. We don't have anything like that during the time of David or Solomon. We don't have any royal seals. We do have some of the later kings of Judah and Israel, but not the great King David or Solomon. Surely we should find one of these little seals or a signet ring in the archaeological record. If David was a great king, perhaps we should find one somewhere, and we don't. If David was a great king, and we have all these battles recorded in the biblical text, shouldn't we have them somewhere on a wall? Shouldn't the temple talk about David's exploits? Now, this is common. Uh, the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about Egypt and we've been going to their temples and looking at the history and they're recording some of the history there. So there, the assumption is David should be just as great a king as Merneptah, as Ramses, as Tutmosis III. Where are the Israelite temples that have all these great battles listed on them? And so that's where they proposed that in the 8th century is when the state developed. Because that's when we start to have evidence of statecraft, bullae, writing, etc. This all changed in 1993 when the Tao Dan inscription was found. The Tao Dan inscription was found at Tao Dan, it's the northernmost site in Israel. It was broken up in three pieces. It was placed in a cobbled surface. So it was destroyed. It's not an Israelite stella, it's an Aramean victory stella that was placed at Dan. The father of my household invaded Israel before he slept with his ancestors. Then the king of Israel invaded the land of my father and Hadad, my divine patron, made me king. Now, Hadad was one of the Aramean kings. With Hadad riding before me, I marched out of my land and destroyed 70 rulers with the corps of chariots and horsemen. I put Jehoram, son of Ahab, and we don't have these names. They happen to be, you know, missing or cracked. But we can, based on the letter and the dating, we can go to the biblical text and, and put the names of the uh, kings in. And ruler of Israel, and Ahaz Ahayu, son of Jehoram, and ruler of the house of David, to death. This is 9th century. David dates to the 10th century. This is Israel 
David is from Judah further south. So we have an Aramean battle destroyed this city of Israel and they wanted to brag of how great, how great they were. And they didn't choose the house of Ahab. They didn't choose the house of Omri. They go, we want to go back to 100 years to the house of David. Now that means the house of David was still well known in the ancient world. And so they used the house of David because they knew Israel used to be under the house of David. So we're going back to that king. And so this even shows that, and from the biblical text, we do know these battles with the Arameans. Uh, Israel was being attacked by the Arameans. Here's Taldan, and we have the various battle descriptions there. Uh, this is, David doesn't exist, Solomon doesn't exist. We have the later Judean kings. It's already the divided monarchy, but yet they still remember. So the Arameans knew there was the great house of David, and you wanted to brag about beating them, what do you say? We beat Alabama. And that's how you brag about yourself. Actually, um, my son's at A&M, and that's our last, A&M's just going downhill, and it's like, if they beat Alabama, they're a great team. So that's our, that's our prayers. That, um, it's a foolish prayer, we know. <laughs> A&M's not gonna do it. What's going on here? There's two ways to prove the United Monarchy. Two approaches to the evidence. The inductive approach. Critical scholars would come and say, well, if David existed, if he was a great king, we should find A, B, C, and D. We give a laundry list. What does a great king do? He brags about himself, so we should find all these things. We don't find these seals. We don't find this great inscription. Therefore, David didn't exist. This is a straw man argument. Although for the ancient world, that's what they did, Judah was unique because the king wasn't supposed to brag about themselves. Yahweh is the one who led them in battle. You are not going to go put your name on the temple or you're not going to survive that evening. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, I'm looking at the deductive approach. I'm saying, can I gather all these fragments of evidence and determine if there was an event that happened? And the event I'm talking about is the development of this major state within this region. This event must be reconstructed. This is what I told you archeologists are looking at a crime scene. We're taking bits and pieces of evidence that survived the archeological record that we excavate and we're reconstructing what we hope is the best case reconstruction of that historical event. And so that's where we're gonna pick it up. How is there evidence to reconstruct that there is a great united monarchy in the land of Israel? And again, um, I'm looking at archeology, span but my heuristic device, my hermeneutics, you know, we have the gospel message, but beneath that we have the social and historical events. So just like the devotion Brian gave, here's the gospel message. It's how they failed God. They weren't interested in giving us a history of the battle, but we're able to reconstruct it going from that story all the way down to the events. So we're gonna look at four arenas. Some of these are already covered. 
the historical data, the collapse of the Mediterranean world. This created a vacuum in the land between. Ramses II lost his labor force. They were part of this mass migration coming up. Egypt was no longer as great. We do have a later pharaoh who does encounter a group of people, Israel, in the land. So we have a datum point. Okay, Israel's already there, 13th century. This collapse fits the geopolitics. A vacuum was created. No longer do we have the might of Egypt or the Hittite empire that controlled this land. So what happens when you have this vacuum? Small secondary states are gonna develop. Uh, I have a, a professor who used to say, when the cat's away, the mice will, pray, will play. The big cats are Egypt and, and Hittites, and now we have all these small mice, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Israelites, uh, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the, all the ites that you know, we skip. So all these groups are vying to become in charge of this area. And we see this in the Bible. The Philistines are the ones who started first. They start to develop into organized central authority. And the book of Samuel talks about this. The Israelites say, we want a king like the Philistines. We want centralized authority. We want health care. We want A, B, C, and D. And what does the prophet say? No, God's going to provide that. If you get a king, you're going to have to be conscripted. You're going to have to work for the king, etc. Settlement data. We've already talked about this demographic shift. All these sites, these settlements, that shift from 219 sites to 505. All these sites that are just going away and all of a sudden towns springing up. There's some force that's causing this. It's not like everybody got up and said, okay, we're going to go live in this city now. It's what Samuel said. There's some centralized authority, i.e. a king, who's saying this town doesn't exist anymore. We're going to build the Motorola factory over here, and you all are going to move over here and build cell phones for King Solomon. Uh, We can see the transition from small tribal sites to well-organized cities. Every data we look at, the settlement data shows that we have evidence of tribes slowly developing into this centralized state. And so now it takes us to state formation. Now that we come to David and Solomon, we're looking at how the state is formed. What does a state need? Fortifications. I've already talked about the organized, the fortified gate systems that we have. Uh, I'm going to talk more about Tau Gezer. Uh, I went back to Tau Gezer, and I've been there the past, well, for 10 seasons. We stopped in 2017, excavating at Gezer. We have these gate systems. We have royal architecture found throughout the land, mostly in Jerusalem and these, and these uh, larger uh, Megiddo, these centralized cities. Now, why does this demonstrate a state? It takes a long time to carve limestone. This serves no function. It doesn't feed your family. Uh, You need to plant your crops. You need to herd your sheep and goats. 
You need to survive the land. You need to plant, you need to grow. So if you have men who aren't doing that, that means their family's not gonna be provided for. You do not become a rock carver if you're an Israelite. Unless you have a king who says, you carve this rock and spend a year carving it, I'm gonna make sure your family is fed, I'm gonna make sure you get paid in silver, etc. You fight for me and join the military, I'm gonna make sure you have land, I'm gonna make sure your family gets A, B, and C. And that's what a centralized authority does. So when archeologists find something like this, royal architecture, it already in, implies a stratified society. Somebody becomes a rock mason, his son becomes a rock mason. Somebody becomes a sower for the king's garments. And then you have specialized um, work. Government buildings, palaces, all of a sudden we see them all over the place. Pillared storehouses and stable, or sometimes called tripartite buildings. Uh, they, these are just storage buildings. Sometimes we find at Megiddo, it looks like they're stables. We have trowels uh, to feed horses, and we have like a parade ground. Other times, we just have like one. And what this is, is sort of like a storage facility. You have to pay your taxes to the king. You have to pay your tithe to the temple. But you live three days from Jerusalem, so you take it to one of these storage cities, and you come with your donkey, your donkey's eating straw, drinking water. As it sits there, the king's men are un unloading all the ties from your grapes, your wheat, etc. This is like our factories today, except instead of mules, we have semi-trucks that get loaded up and high school students and college students unload them and make money and put it in the warehouse. And, and that's these are early warehouses. Uh, there's one, um, a scholar who proposed that all these tripart buildings are located in key network areas so people can take the, their um, ties and give to the king. So these become redistribution centers. Redistribution for who? Well, that guy who's carving that rock. And so they have grain and oil they can give him for the soldiers that are serving et cetera, et cetera, and for the king to supply for the people during times of drought. This is centralized authority. These aren't peasants that are, you know, my son can't farm, I'm gonna have him carve pretty rocks. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't work, you make them, you make them farm. Um, city planning, well-planned cities. Uh, this is uh, Beersheba down in the desert, less rainfall. They've designed this teardrop shape so when it rains up here, it goes all the way down and it's collected in the centralized water system. Before this, everybody just built their house willy-nilly. It's just like, well, my son gets married, just add another you know, section to it. Here, you have a governor, somebody saying, here's the street, you can't build your house here. Here's the you know, 12 degree grade that our streets are gonna be. So when it rains, as a community, we get this water. A king needs a capital. 
So naturally we have the question of Jerusalem, the city of David, Solomon's temple. There is not much evidence for David and Solomon being in Jerusalem. We do not have any evidence for Solomon's temple. Now part of that is the nature of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a living city. These are all houses. I cannot come as Lipscomb University and say, you know, I want to look for Solomon. I'm going to have to bow dolls three of your homes and open up an area. It's just not going to work. We're interested in looking for the temple. We're going to blow up the Dome of the Rock, and <laughs> as Christians, we're going to go find some. Uh, you can see one of the issues with Jerusalem. It's not like Gezer or some of these other sites that are out in the field where uh, archaeologists can excavate. It's a sacred city. Uh, you cannot you know, blow up the Dome of the Rock. But there's been a lot of data in the recent 20 years coming up out of Jerusalem. Part of that is just the nature of you build houses, you have to have an archaeological excavation. Uh, remodeling the city. Uh, they're putting in a south tower, so they have to dig a platform. Well, what do they do? Archaeologists go there first, and we start to excavate. Uh, there's sewage problems. They gotta redo a drain pipe. This is how the Pool of Siloam was recently discovered. Uh, they had a sewage problem. They had to dig out a trench to replace the sewer. In the process, they discovered the Pool of Siloam that dates to the time of Jesus. They don't put that in the article. They just say, you know, we designed this, but it's actually a problem with sewer. And so that's the nature of Jerusalem, and there's been a lot of work done. Uh, City of David excavations. We know that this Opal Hill is the Old Testament site. This was the Jebusite city that David conquered. And then Solomon eventually built the temple further north when they got the threshing floor of Aruna. So most of the archaeological excavations have been on the slope. You can see the top has the, uh, Silwan, the Arab village, and then archaeologists, Area G, the Middle Bronze Age Gate, uh, another ex southern ex excavation down here. So anywhere that there's not a building, archaeologists have tried to um, put an excavation area. And here's just the plan of the various little pieces of excavations. They're building a big, massive parking lot structure here for the tourists. So because of that, they bought out different homes, and now this is just a wide area on the Opal Hill uh, where they're able to excavate. Uh, they've been doing it for like the past 15 years. Eventually, the, you know, there'll be a bus parking lot so people can go into the old city. But right now, archaeologists uh, are busy excavating before tourist season. <laughs> you have to remove it. Uh, city of David excavations. This has been well excavated, and all of a sudden, we discovered a large, massive water tower and fortification. It started with the time of Abraham, but this is an old Jebusite building that was reused in the Iron Age period. So we do have part of um, reuse for the capital. Uh, Elat Mazar has excavated here in the city of David, and archaeologists have always known about this stepstone structure. 
most think that this is the Milo because it's always being rebuilt. And this is some type of just subterranean substructure to support whatever is built on top. Now here's an example. This dates to the Old Testament. This dates to the Persian period, Nehemiah's wall. This is the Roman period. Everybody who builds in Jerusalem has to put their wall on the edge and then everything on the top of the hill, they shave off and build their city. So where's David's city? It's in the valley. I mean, everybody who came, they would shave it off and dump it down the valley and build their city. Uh, We do have a a house that dates to the 8th century. This is where the bullae were found. But Elat Mazar, they were building a new tourist center for the city of David. And so we had a small dig, and you can just see it's only like 15 meters, um, 30 feet between this house and another house here. And what she found is on top of this stepstone structure, a large building. And this is a palace type structure. And she claimed this is the palace of King David. Now, she's cheating a little because this palace dates to the ninth century. David's in the 10th century. But it's built on bedrock because you need to build on not sand, but the rock. And so they would have cleaned out this 10th century building and then built their 9th century palace, the later kings. But in certain pockets beneath this 9th century building, we have good 10th century pottery. So she knows there was an earlier 10th century building there. And it's sort of like when you rip up carpet and then you see the old linoleum the dates to 1970, and you rip that off, and you see the old, older linoleum that dates, you know. <laughs> you can date the surfaces. Well, archaeologists are doing the same thing. We rip off a surface. We can see a surface under there. And what we have is we just have patches of that earlier linoleum. But based on the linoleum, we can date it because it's lime green, and we know we don't put lime green linoleum down anymore. Or I don't know. I, I just know my wife tells me, and I just do what she says, <laughs> yes, but I know it's a color that we don't use, so, um, so that's what, what she found. She found a palace there that has a long history on top of the stepstone structure. So there's a debate, but most agree that it's probably dating to King David. Further up the slope, again, it's construction, they're widening the road, they're creating a, a walking path here, so they're able to excavate right here outside the old city, the Opal Hill excavations, and what they also discovered is a large four-chambered gate like we see, except just four chambers, like we see at Hatsor Megiddo and Gezer. And here's a reconstruction. You know, here's the gate complex, reconstruction of the gate complex. This is one of the gates that goes from the city up to the temple. So the temple was also a fortified entrance to get to. And then here's sort of a basic reconstruction of all the pieces, the walls we found, the large platform, and then uh, this one is only the city of David, 
but Elot's excavation, the tower would be somewhere like right here. This big tower that I showed you. Large, massive fortifications. There's some type of centralized authority here of the 10th century. Again, it's just pieces. We get the pieces together and we're able to create a large picture of an ancient city. As I said, there's no archeological evidence for Solomon's temple. Uh, there shouldn't be. The temple mount is built on top of bedrock. So each time a temple is built, it has to be swept off and you build it on the temple mount. Um, I used to go there when they still allowed non-Muslims into the Dome of the Rock. And if you pull apart the carpets there in the holy sanctuary, you can, you, it's, it's bedrock. So it's, even the Dome of the Rock is built on top of um, the, the bedrock there. So we have to assume any earlier buildings, even the temple during the time of Jesus. This is what's unique. Jesus stated, prophesied that not one stone would be made upon another of the temple. And it's one of the few prophecies that archaeology can prove because there is no wall of the temple on the Temple Mount. There are many men who on the internet say they found a wall, but do you trust them or Jesus? I'll, I'll let you decide. So, but what we can do is a comparative analysis. We have, since the second millennium, all the way to the Roman period, a history of temples and how they're built. And so we can take the biblical account, and it gives us a lot of measurements, reconstruct this tripartite temple, and then compare it to other temples. During the time of Abraham, he had a Migdal temple. It was just a single temple, a holy place, and a portico, and massive fortification. This is a, a big, it's called the Migdal, because that means fort. And so go, okay, this is just a massive temple. That's how they built temples, square-shaped. And then they start to get elongated, and then around the 10th century, you have the tripartite classic temple where everybody realizes the deity resides in the inner chamber and the priests serve the deity outside the inner chamber and you have this level of holiness that we see described in the Bible. And then when you get to the Persian period, they become square-shaped. So if the Bible was written in the Persian period, like some scholars suggest, and that's when they created the story, whoever wrote it should have described a Persian temple in the book of Kings. Well, this is how, temple, how a temple looks because they wouldn't have seen Solomon's temple. And what I'm proposing to you is whoever described Solomon's temple described a good 11th, 10th century tripartite temple because that's what was in vogue in the ancient Near East. And again, who built the temple? The Phoenicians, the same construction company, came and said, this is how you build temples. And ironically, up in Syria, next to Phoenicia, is where we have the best evidence for temples that are comparable with what we see in the biblical text. Uh, Eindara and um, Tautayanat, but I like this one. We gotta keep in mind that Solomon's temple was a lot smaller. It was not like the Jerusalem temple. The temple is where God resided. The people sacrificed out in the courtyard. 
You do not go into the temple. It's not like our church where you come inside to meet God, where the, the dividing the, the veil is broken and we, we can now, with Christ, we can meet God face to face. Before, it was only the high priest that can go and meet God. And so it's a different type of architecture. And here you can see reconstruction of the temple, very similar to Solomon's, even the two columns. Ain Dara up north in Syria. I like this one. They even make these like, it's like a foot and a half footprint of the God, the deity going in. So you can see like, okay, God's a lot, they're God, I'm not, you know, the God. Their God's a lot bigger than your footprint there. And this is, you know, the footprint of their deity Baal going into, into the temple. But when you compare it, it has antichambers just like Solomon's temple is described. The antichambers around it, a portico, an antichamber, a main hall, and they have a shrine. But in Solomon's temple, it'd be the Holy of Holies. So it fits when we look at the archaeology, just like we're looking at eight track tapes to cassette tapes, we can date that material culture. Now, every kingdom ha- needs to have a border. Mm-hmm. It's always an issue. Even now, we're complaining about the border. The government needs to protect the border. Same thing in the time of the state of David. Uh, this is one of my favorite slides. This is Judah. Azek is a Judite city. Elah Valley is where David fought Goliath. This is where Saul was fighting the Philistines. Gath is one of the biggest Philistine cities located right there. I enjoy hearing pastors when they talk about the story of David going, taking a sack lunch to his brothers, his father sending them. They always talk about like a week journey going to the front. It's like, no, David, within four hours, he was at the front. The Philistines, the fight was right there at the front door. And here you can see it, you know, David going like, well, there's where the, the camp is of the Israelites. There's the Philistine camp. There's a Philistine city. Um, this is a border issue. Recent archaeological excavations have found that there's still some Canaanites living in this pocket here. Now, uh, Bunimovitz and Zvi Letterman, the scholars, they put the whole Shvela but I think we already have some Israelite territory here, and this is actually this Canaanite enclave theory. What's unique is when you look at the account in Joshua and Judges in the battle, and where they fought the Canaanites, there's no battle in the northern Shelah. And if I go back to the Canaanite theory, this is the same location that we still see Canaanites living. So they weren't able to push out the Canaanites from this area, and so we still see them living among this day. The Shvela, the foothills, is a contested territory. It's the border. You have the five Philistine cities over here on the coast. Here's three of them. Uh, you have the uh, Canaanites living between them, and then you have all these tribes that are up in the whole country developing into a state. And so this even shows the biblical account knows that this is a border area that are, it's being fought constantly. So recent trends in archaeology, I'm going to talk about my excavations, but also another excavation, Kayafa, unknown site. It's been surveyed. People have driven by this site. They just said it was a Hellenistic farmhouse because we have Hellenistic pottery there. 
My colleague Yossi Garfinkel went there from Hebrew University, dug this site, and all of a sudden they found evidence of a centralized authority. A massive casemate wall, four-chambered gate, and I just put pottery here, but that to illustrate this city dates to the time of David. It's not mentioned in the Bible. We have various cities mentioned in, in you know, the, the um, tribal list. So every scholar is trying to guess. You just go to the book of Joshua. Okay, here's a name we don't know. Let's put this name there. Uh, they think it might be Sha'arim. There's a site in this region that Joshua mentions that belongs to Judah. And Sha'ar is Hebrew for gate. And this site has two gates, some multiple gates. So they think that the city, two gates, Sha'arim, probably fits this. Uh, but we don't know it's something new. But we know it's fortified. It dates to the time of David. We have evidence of writing there. This is a fortified city. It's a military outpost. It sits right and that slide I showed you, Kerber Kayafa against Tawasafi in Ekron. These are good Philistine cities right here. And it's sort of like facing them. And so you can see somebody built this fortified city. Well, critical scholars, naturally, Yossi says, well, this is Jerusalem. Boom, they're putting up their fort before the Philistines. Others will say, no, this is a Philistine city, and the Philistines are coming up to Jerusalem. Well, as I said, we know the material culture of an Israelite city versus a Philistine city. There are no pig bones here. There are no, <laughs> I always have pigs in my lectures, so there's no pig bones there. There's no Philistine pottery. Um, the pottery looks Israelite. This is an Israelite place that's sitting here. I'm coming back to my excavations. I've been at Gezer since 2006 to 2017 under the auspices of the Tandy Excavations at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary with consortium schools. Uh, now Gezer will be under the auspices of the Linear Center for Archaeology, so I'll eventually change the slides. I'm just slowly getting the Baptist name out and putting, you know, Church of Christ name there. Uh, we decided, my colleague Sam and I, to excavate right here in the saddle. This is where Solomon has his gate, and naturally I'm interested in the history of Solomon. What we found is a series of cities. I won't go into this because I normally lecture for an hour just on this site, but we have a Canaanite city during the late Bronze Age uh, connected with Egypt. We have Egyptian scarabs, uh, pottery with it. This city was destroyed. We know who was the culprit, Merneptah. I mentioned Merneptah as the one who mentions Israel. But when Merneptah goes back home and he wants to brag, he says, I was the subduer of Gezer. So from an Egyptian perspective, Gezer was more important. From a biblical archaeological perspective, we're more interested that he mentioned Israel. After this destroyed city, we have a series of three Canaanite cities. These Canaanite cities have Canaanite customs, a lamp bowl deposit. Uh, you seal it in the floor, foundation deposit. You have a lamp, and it's put between two bowls. This is my son who just discovered one, so he was quite excited. 
And we have some Philistine pottery at Gezer, but not enough for a Philistine city. So it looks like Gezer was trading with the Philistines, but we have this account of a battle with the Philistines. David chases them off the hills, and so David did just as the Lord commanded him after this battle, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon, a good Israelite city, down to Gezer. So the Canaanites, once they fled into, the Philistines, once they fled into Gezer, they felt comfortable there. We don't know if they had a treaty. We don't know if they were, you know, uh, connected with them. But they got into this fortified city, and David stopped the pursuit. The last phase of the city, um, these buildings, it turned to a cultic center. And in this cultic center, we had several storage rooms and store jars. And one of the unique features is these clay stoppers. Now, these are not anything. It, everybody has a clay stopper. You need to seal the wine from bugs, from theft. It's a good sealant, just like you put a cork in a bottle. You take a lump of wet clay, and you just pack it on top of the store jar. As you pack it down, some of it goes inside the, the neck of the jar, and it forms this mushroom shape. And so we just call them mushroom stoppers because archaeologists aren't very creative. But it looks like a mushroom, so that becomes the technical term for this. Uh, this one scholar noted that there is an Egyptian battle by Siamon. Now I'm going to backtrack here. We know the Pharaoh conquered Gezer and gave it to Solomon. The Bible doesn't give us Pharaoh's name. But everybody, based on historical dead reckoning, has proposed Siamon. This is the only pharaoh that dates to the time of Solomon and David, etc. Well, he's found that Siamon has his seals all over the southern Levant. And, you know, we have a picture, more pictographs of this seal. And somebody said that on some of these clay stoppers, we find a seal on the stopper, a signet of the king. So my colleague Sam Wolf goes to our lab and pulls them all out. And sure enough, on one of our seals, we find one of these um, little men attacking a, a gazelle, you know, some type of symbol of, of Siamon. This is in the destruction of this city. This city is destroyed, and right on top of it, we have a brand new city. And the Solomonic city gate, and we found a large palace. We call it an administrative center. For Christianity today, I called it Solomon's Palace because I wanted to make the press here in the U.S., and that's, they're going to pick up on that. But it's just some type of administrative building. Solomon was not here. I don't think Solomon ever visited Gezer. He was up busy with his wives in Jerusalem. But we mean under the auspices of the king Solomon, this city was formed and Solomon fortified it. We have that one verse there. And right beneath this city, we have a destroyed city with Pharaoh Siamon. So this is Solomon, one of Solomon's father-in-laws. Uh, here's just a close-up view of the um, palace. We have, again, pottery that dates into the 10th century, and these palaces are very common, found throughout Israel. 
and so we have centralized authority. This palace was severely destroyed. Look at this tumble of stones. These are ashlar stones, uh, rectangular-shaped stones that are carved that were just caved in. I kept telling students, because they'd have to remove it, and it would take like sometimes four or five students to carry out one of these stones or, or break it. And I said, this means that the Pharaoh who destroyed Solomon's Gezer, we're still gonna find a lot of stuff and maybe we'll find the archives. Well, that season, we didn't find anything. We found the destruction. So it looks like the governor of Gezer knew Shishak was coming to destroy it and they cleaned out the, the palace. Uh, we do know the Bible talks about this the fifth year of King Rehoboam, right after Solomon, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacks Jerusalem. To attack Jerusalem, you have to come to, um, through Gezer. And then after this, the palace no longer exists, and some Canaanite comes and builds a house on top of the, of the palace. So Gezer is no longer this royal city, and the point I'm making is, this is quick run through history, we see Gezer shifting back and forth and it becomes under Solomon. Now I'm gonna close with just showing you how this illustrates the biblical text, uh, reading between the lines of the Bible. We have three accounts, David and Goliath, this is under Saul's reign. We have this battle that I talked about right after David unites the north and the south and they conquer Jerusalem from the Jebusites the Philistines come up and attack David because now he's strong and they have to put down this new centralized authority. And then we have this account of Solomon's western fortress. David and Goliath fighting here in the Elah Valley and I'm gonna pull these accounts together. David becomes king of Jerusalem, barely captures the Jebusite city. Some scholars think David isn't even living there yet. He's still down in Hebron. Um, I think he is because the Philistines come looking for David. And where do they come looking for him? In a valley just south of Jerusalem. This valley is where the Jerusalem Mall is located. So if you want to go to Coles or Macy's, that's, you go to the same valley. As an archaeologist, I go there to remember this account there. Uh, but that's how it's within the environs of Jerusalem. And so we look at the topo map, boom, Jerusalem becomes a new capital. The Philistines immediately go up, go to the mall, and they fight David right there in the South Valley beneath Jerusalem. Uh, there is a fortress at this point. David chases them back down the valley. Then the Philistines come back again. David fights them, but this time God tells them to stop them from going down. And so the Philistines, their escape to get back to Philistia, they have to go up north and they take one of these roads to Gezer. And this is where David chases them from Gibeon all the way to Gezer. So they're out of, Philist of Israelite territory. And then, Bible doesn't mention it, but somebody under David's auspices goes and builds a fort. David gets wise, okay, this is they're gonna keep coming up here. This is where we fought them. So he builds this site of Caiapha. It's destroyed, it's not important for the biblical author, 
They're choosing other cities that Solomon fortified that were more majestic, but we have evidence of this unfortified city. And this is where the early battle was. And then after that, under David, after David, the site goes out of use, Azekah becomes a Philistine city, and where does Solomon fortify? Gezer. So you can see this westward shift from Jerusalem. David is moving the boundary into the Philistine territory. Now they were stopped here at Azekah because Gath was a major city. And it stayed major to the eighth century when the Arameans destroyed it and Israel was able to, um, to attack it. So just the latest archeology span kind of fits what we have with our map. Here's David's smaller uh, Judah and then he unites Ishbaoth, Saul's son's um, Saul's son, who takes over as king, and then Abner comes and brings all the northern tribes in alliance with David, and so David's kingdom encompasses the north and the south. On these maps, Gezer is still outside, but the next Bible map in your atlas, you have Solomon, who's able to push even further west. So. Kingdoms have borders, kingdoms have battles, and we can see the contraction moving back and forth, and archaeologists are able to pinpoint uh, these places. Just pulling all this together, and this excites me because it's not mentioned in the Bible, but there's still new cities to be found and discovered to illustrate uh, the biblical text. We do have evidence for David. This is one of the historical figures now where we have uh, an outside force mentioning him. Why don't we have Joshua and Judges? They never fought somebody outside the land. They only fought locally. But the minute David or a Judean king or an Israelite king goes and fights Aram or Egypt, then all of a sudden we have them in the biblical text and we have records of them. David was the first one to expand his kingdom so now we start to have an Aramean kingdom talking about this great house of David. Uh, we also have Israel and the Stella and Mesha we think there is. But so was David a king or a shepherd chief? I think when we look at the archaeological record, we can tell that, yes, he was a shepherd chief that God chose to forge this great nation that eventually became the United Monarchy under Solomon. And archaeology does show that. Are the stories of David and Solomon fairy tales? Well, I'll propose that there was a crime. We can put all the evidence together. and We can see that they fit the historical record. Does it matter? I think so. Our faith is based on God acting in history. It, Christianity is unique. It's a historic faith. It's our God did something, and we believe it. And even so, when we look at God speaking to David, and he talks about, in the context, his son coming on throne, but he talks about a house and a throne that will be established forever, and a messianic prophecy. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so now we're no longer looking for that king of the land, but we're looking for that son of David who is gonna be the chosen one, the Messiah that eventually came. 
And so uh, that ends. If you ask a question, um, future research, this is what the Lanier Center is doing. Ceramic analysis, we have a new site now. We're working with the Israelis further south, so I want to kind of continue this Philistine-Judah uh, border fight. That's kind of where my research is. And so that's um, where I'm at. Hopefully this summer, some of you are more than welcome to join me. Uh, you don't need any uh, experience. We take theologians, so we, you know. Uh, but uh, we have a role for anybody. So uh, talk to me after or in church. Come up to me, and uh, if COVID situation doesn't affect us, we plan to be in Israel next summer. We plan to be in Egypt this December, so we have a lot of projects going. So thank you for putting up with me. I enjoy talking about God's word and its historical foundation. Thank you. That was awesome. You're and we do have we do have a few questions that, that came in. Um, first one harkens back a, a couple of weeks. He said, "The question is: Has there been any major finds in or around the Red Sea as to God parting it?" No. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, uh, you have a miracle, you have footprints. Um, if there was, I mean, I, I know there was chariots or anything that would have been destroyed, uh, it would have, the seawater would have, within five years, chewed up any metal or any wood of the um, chariots. Or the Amalekites, who Israel fought on the way down, would have hauled them out and sold them. So it's like any junkyard, it would have been stripped, it would have been, you know, um, removed. So a yard sale in East Tennessee, we might be able to... You might be able to find out, yeah. Just, just checking, okay. Um, was there a topic that you didn't get to tell us about that you would have liked to, or any that you would have liked, loved to have gone deeper into? Holy cow. Wow. Uh, all <laughs> all a, of it? Yeah, yeah but basically every slide I'm holding back that I can, go, I can chase three or four rabbits. Um, I, I, I do... Uh, I usually save it for pastors, but I do like to show um, how archaeology and geography helps us interpret God's word even better. Amen. So there's three or four Amen. insights that I would like to go like, okay, here's how we, you know, like for example, the, the David being so close. It's like when you see the geography, when you see where the location is, you have to change the way you preach God's word. You have to preach it within its geographical context. That's so fantastic. stuff like that I would love to. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. What's the purpose of the chambers and the gates? Um, multi-purpose. First off, just to have a tower. So you need uh, to span wood, and so you need uh, you know, a wall to hold that wood. So that six-chambered gate allows you to put beams across and build a second floor. Now, now that you have these little chambers, it also allows for, if an enemy is going to come through, there would have been wooden doors here. They'd have to go through four wooden doors to eventually get inside. Now, during times of peace, you have the space there. And some of these um, gates we find 
places where it looks like a governor sat, a throne area. And in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, we hear wisdom is at the gate. We hear judgment is at the gate. And so this becomes the central area, the gate, and then the piazza, the plaza inside the gate, the commercial enterprise. This is probably where you had um, judges sitting. This is probably where you had you know, uh, rulers that they can be addressed. We have an account when Absalom overthrew David. He would go sit at the gate and he would hear the hearts of the people and he'd say, oh, if only I was king, I would A, B, C, and D, and provide you health care and et cetera. Politics and haven't then, changed. Yes, they haven't changed. And so that's how his son was able to win the hearts of the people and attempt to overthrow David. So we have a hint that that's where people gather there. It harkens oh. to Ruth, right? Yes. <laughs> it harkens to yeah. those things. And, let's, and then the last one was more of a comment. He said, they said, I really like how you emphasize that the Bible is telling us who God is and how he has moved, not a history book. Thank you for coming and sharing with us. And I Thank appreciate you. that, too. I have, a, I have a great appreciation. And this is unique. I mean, I hope you all appreciate, you know, the gift that we have, the Lord has given us in, in this. And thank you so much for presenting. Thank, thank you, you so much. Enjoy. Yeah. Thank you, your church. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Brian and Dr. Ortiz. Just a couple of closing comments. Um, speaking about the gate, uh, the last, uh, if you remember in May, we went through the book of Ruth. Well, if you remember, as Boaz is looking at the seal of the deal, what does it say in Ruth chapter 4? Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. That very kind of structure, right, uh, that be, kind of became that city center. So what Dr. Ortiz does, and, and by seeing these images, right, it helps the Bible come alive in your mind. Because I've been to Gezer, uh, had the opportunity to go to Israel several years ago on the first kind of hiking expedition there. Uh, and so I've been in that very, that very place. And again, it just helps you to begin to spark your imagination to, to realize how it's all connected. And when you begin to read in the Bible, they left here and they went there. You know, again, you begin to understand it. And so, you know, I know he's issued the invitation, but I would strongly encourage any of you, if you ever want to travel anywhere in the world, I would encourage you to go to Israel because it's as if you've been reading the Bible in grainy black and white television your whole life. And all of a sudden it's in high definition. Um, and so if you have a dream trip or whatever, a bucket list, uh, to me, if you love God's word in the Bible, that, that should be on it because it is the stage of redemptive history. Uh, and so, so much comes alive. Uh, and I know even just devotionally connecting all the dots, how God wired us to be holistic creatures. When you see the geography and the climate uh, and the sites and God's word, and it all comes together, uh, it really comes alive in a whole new, fresh way. So thank you, Dr. Ortiz, for these four weeks. Uh, and uh, we hope that we've been a good test audience for you as you get to present this material uh, several more times. And uh, yeah, I laughed at the one where someone asked, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Because... I had a whole semester of three-hour lectures on a Monday afternoon uh, in a fellowship hall with him as a seminary professor, but you need to know that part of the way I teach is because of the way he taught me. The reason why I show you slides, the reason why I like to give you context is because I realize that's so important for us uh, to be able to fully understand the full counsel of God's Word. And the other thing, again, I mentioned this, I think, the first night, uh, but uh, Dr. Ortiz and his wife, 
teach in our preschool. So if that should encourage you, right, it's first of all the humility and just the servant's heart to say we're going to serve where is needed. Uh, but the fact that uh, we've got one of the finest archaeologists in the world teaching our preschoolers, right, uh, should uh, tell you something about their heart and uh, just their, their passion for the church and uh, the fact that he's not just presenting at these scholarly conferences, but he's a part of a local church uh, and is serving. Uh, he, he really connects the dots between uh, the academic world and the practical. So we're grateful for you. Uh, and Beth and your family, and we're glad you're a part of our church family. So let me close this with a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll go. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for your word, how rich and deep it is. We thank you for people like uh, Dr. Ortiz who have devoted their life, God, to, to study, to help us understand, God, how your word, uh, God, is, is true. And, God, we can see how all of the arrows begin to line up uh, to paint that picture of redemptive history that you've given us in your word. So, Lord, thank you for the fact that uh, even just with the tip of the iceberg of all that he knows and has experienced, he's been able to share with us, uh, God, this evidence and these truths. And, Lord, that we can know uh, that our faith as he said tonight, is a historic faith. God, it's not based on myths or fables, uh, but you interacted with real people in real history, God, in order to bring about your plan. And so, God, I thank you uh, for the fact that this whets our appetites to dig into our Bibles even more, uh, to have a desire to know you and your word. And so we pray that you bless him and Beth and their family. God, we're grateful that they're a part of our church family, and we pray that we continue to pray for and support them uh, as they continue the work that you've called them to. So, Lord, thanks for this time together. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.